we were on yesterday, had a homegoing service here, and I was thinking of how privileged we are to be citizens of such a modern time in which when it came to, or when it comes to healthcare, we have so much technology and modern information in terms of the human anatomy that we're able to address so many issues that don't have to conclude as a fatality anymore. And I was sharing from, made the comparison of how privileged we are, I was sharing from the context of Luke 16. And you know the story, there's a rich man and there's the poor man, and um, the poor man is described as Lazarus. And uh, the rich man, of course, had the wealth and the power and the availability of all that he needed to sustain a good life. But the story says that Lazarus found himself each day at the rich man's gate, just wanting the scraps from his table. But then I got to thinking how privileged we are in reference to health care, because we're always praying that God would heal somebody that we know. Lazarus, unfortunately, did not have such access. There was no Kaiser Permanente. There was no Edna. No Blue Cross, no Blue Shield. And no Obamacare. So the only care that he was provided, says the text, was that the dogs licked his sores every single day. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the old tale, but old folk would used to say that if you got a sore and you let a dog lick it, it would bring about a healing. Now, I don't have medical knowledge of knowing what's the composition of a dog's saliva, but there must be some truth there, for Luke said that the dogs licked his sores day in and day out. Said all that to say that we don't have to have dogs now to lick our sores, but we have the privilege of such intelligent physicians and the, of course, ability of medications to bring about healing for us. I said all that to say, thank you for praying for my niece, uh, who's doing a, a rather progressive job in terms of healing. You know, before she had the stroke, the swelling was on the brain, the swelling has gone down, she's able to speak small words now. Um, I think she has some mobility in, uh, in her left arm, I believe. Um, she had the problem of not being able to eat or swallow, so now she can have teaspoons of water and can swallow. 
my understanding that she was waiting apparently for visitors to come see her. And when they arrived the other day, she just looked at him and said, why did it take y'all so long? <laughs> so modern technology gives us such progress. And we may not appreciate it, and you won't until you got to use it. When you got to use it, then you'll see what, what a privilege it is to have access to it. See, that's another issue. You don't have access to it. Uh, then, then you're almost at the level of Lazarus at the rich man's gate. And I don't have time to preach that because I know we got to roll on. But you think about it. This whole debate about health care, think about that. Just think about the whole debate and the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. They, they are virtually parallel. Where the haves have it and the haves don't want to have not to have it at all. Just think about it. Think about it. The haves got it. And there's a reason why they don't want the have-nots to have it. And you watch, you mark my word, I may not see you another day, but this, this tax reform, the haves got it. And now the haves gonna get more. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. Oh, let me say one other thing. Uh, I want to commend young Brother Purcell. Rockin' it, ain't he? Stand up. There you go. Stand up, man. Let me see that seat, man. I, 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 I want to say two things to you. One, man, you look good in that thing, but I tell you, you look some kind of good in that suit, man. Uh, and two, I am envious that you got the guts to wear it. I tell you. <laughs> but you look good, man. I tell you. I saw you come around for offer, and I said, good God Almighty, look at that brother right there. That's all right. That's a, just put a plug in, that's a highly intelligent young man as well. Uh, he, he is already uh, off to the races for entrepreneurship. And uh, when he gets to be 25, don't, don't be alarmed or don't be surprised to hear that he'll already be a millionaire if he stays on the road that he's on now. He's, I know that's right. But, you know, I, 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 I must say that, that as they do say, that the fruit don't fall far from the tree. Amen. So he has a mother and father that certainly has given him strong direction. And I commend you for that. And I commend you, Mrs. Purcell, as well. Now, we're going to prop him up because he's got two sisters he's going to have to help take care of as well. So we're going to make him responsible as well so that when he get rich, you get rich too. Amen. Bless you. Let me lift up just a brief passage from Matthew chapter 2 
And I want to read the first um, four verses, Matthew chapter 2, but I really just want to highlight verse 2, but I'm going to read the first four verses of Matthew chapter 2. Word of the Lord, Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. The wonderful thing about the Christmas story is that it can be approached from a number of perspectives and yet still arrive at the same conclusion in reference to both the awe and reverence of what the story intends to proclaim. I could approach this story from the standpoint of the Magi's and share with you no question Zuber that they experience while witnessing the star from a distance that they knew now that the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 was surely about to come to pass as they had saw that star that would lead them to where the king of the Jews would be born. I could likewise tell the story of how exciting it must have been, at least for those throughout the city who had listened to the inquiry by Mary and Joseph in reference to a space in which they could occupy as they had all come to town and they were looking for some place to reside temporarily, but there was no room in the inn. And each of those who had to deny or decline, Mary and Joseph, I believe, had a story to tell. I can also tell the story from the angle of Joseph and Mary themselves, who probably struggled with the idea of now knowing that she is carrying the seed not only for eternity, but the seed of redemption for all of humanity and yet had to wonder why this process to get to the space again of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Birth taking place in Bethlehem. I could also tell the story uh, from not just Mary and Joseph, but even from the standpoint of Matthew's critique as he tries to paint the picture with a Jewish flair that they might understand and rejoice in the lineage to which the king is to come from their own ethnicity. 
But I want to look at the story this morning through the eyes of one person who is defined as the king of Judah, but he's a rather disturbed and agitated man. Herod is a wicked person. He's wicked to the point where life really has no meaning unless he defines it. Herod is so evil that he not only had his mother killed, he had his brother killed, he had his mother-in-law killed, he had his sister killed, and he had one of his own sons killed. Herod had a problem with anyone who threatened his kingdom. Herod was overwhelmingly paranoia. He experienced a bit of schizophrenic because anyone who breathed a hint of being contesting to him would end up suffering the fate in Herod's manner in dealing with everything that threatened him was death. Can you imagine how now the Jewish people, and might I add Herod is not a Jew, he is an appointed king by the Roman Empire, and how the Jewish people felt every time they would even hear the name Herod. They knew that if you crossed Herod in any fashion, you could very well be breathing your last death, breath, should I say. But what gets me is that when Herod hears this question, it not only perplexes him, but it drives him to derangement. Verse two, where is he born king of the Jews? Herod's problem is centered around the word born. Because Herod knows that if this really does come to pass, he not being born a king, but merely appointed a king, and to have Jesus born a king meant that Herod would be removed as king. And that, once again, posed as a threat to Herod. But before I get there, I want to say something about the Christmas season. It's a bit of a paradox to me every year in which we experience this time of celebration. It's a bit of a strange juxtaposition of Christianity when you think about it. And it's kind of a carnival mentality uh, which is a bit amusing when you witness it. In fact, one writer has said it this way. He says, when we look at Christmas, notice how we've sort of altered its meaning and sort of reduced its effectiveness. He says that the humility and the poverty of the stable is often confused with the wealth and the indulgence of selfishness in gift giving. He says that the quietness of Bethlehem is often tried to be compared with the den of the shopping malls. 
he says that the seriousness of the incarnation is often laced with the silliness of the party spirit and attitude. And then he says, notice that the colored blinking lights often just oppose to the star of heaven. And just a confusion to even deepen itself, we idolize cheap plastic toys in comparison to the true gifts given by the wise men who came to serve the king. And then he says angels <clears throat> are often confused <clears throat> with flying reindeer in the air. And the filth of the stable is often confused with white fresh snow. All seems to lead to a chaotic and confusing understanding and miss the true meaning of what Christmas is intended to be. I can likewise tell this story from the angle of the prophets of old and from the apostles and the wise men as well as those that I've mentioned before. But there's something about this historical moment in Bethlehem even to the present that many have managed to overlook this baby that is born in the stable. Go back 21 centuries and all eyes are upon a geographical space known as Rome. It was vast and it was vicious and it was victorious and the name of the day was not Herod but Caesar Augustus. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, i.e. the great nephew of Julius Caesar. The appointed priest of Rome, a leader who had poor health and poor strength and was ruthless and cunning as the head Roman in charge. He was the most significant person of Rome's day and yet in ruling the vast empire of Rome, he hardly knew what it meant to be defeated. And because of his lavish lifestyle, he enjoyed a company with those who were of the elite and those who were of power and those who were of the wealth. There was a need to increase taxes and the people needed to go back to their homeland in order to register. And Joseph and his family went back to Bethlehem, mark this, Mary, just about at full turn, marching some 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, on foot, under harsh conditions, perhaps with swollen feet and extra weight to carry, and moving about with slow mobility, and lurking in her mind is the idea of knowing that no one, at least in Rome, cared if she gave birth or not. And one thing to consider is that Mary in her condition, although as grave as it may have looked and discouraging, the trip yet provided for her two points of inspiration. One, she knew that the angel that announced to her that she was the favorite selection of God to carry the seed of the Redeemer could forever lurk in her heart that this might be a tough journey to make, 
But there's a reason why God selected me to carry the seed of his eternal son. And the second thing that could have motivated her was that because I'm carrying the seed, I'm going to fulfill prophecy. And that is, as Micah said, this son shall be born in Bethlehem. What we may not seem to consider often is that the fragile and dangerous conditions it was for Jesus to be born. Likewise, the unusualness and the tedious likeness that Mary's life was experiencing because once it was discovered that she was unmarried and pregnant, while though being public shame, that would be the least of her issues. For childbirth in those days was risky even for women who had wealth on their side let alone for a young woman of uncertain means traveling in her ninth month of pregnancy 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The registration that they had to do marched them, Joseph and Mary, toward a system that was a part of an oppressive tax system, one that was administered by corrupt officials. I ain't going to call no names, but its tax reform was instituted for the whole purpose of feeding the wealth and their greed. I'm going to leave it right there. I ain't going to call no more names, but there it is right there in the text. And yet God took a young poor girl and chose her to be the mother of the redeemer and remember since there was no room at the Waldorf Historium, there was no room at the Willard, no room at the Ritz Carlisle, and no room at the Four Seasons, and no room even at the Trump Hotel, God used a stable full of animals and made it the birthplace of the Prince of Peace. He came down, watch this, God, had the nerve to come down in the human flesh and look at this, God asked human beings to hold him, to feed him, to treasure him, and to raise him. God took rough shepherds and made them messengers of good news. He took royalty who traveled at a distance from the east led by a star and who did not come empty-handed but came bearing gifts to bring to the very Son of God. I like the way Eugene Peterson says in John 1, chapter, 1, chapter 14, the way he describes how God came to humanity. He said, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Fast forward 21 centuries later where we are now and notice how we have to cipher through so much news and announcements that we not only don't hear really anything about this child born in Bethlehem, but even if we do, it is often overlooked as a sense of insignificance. But notice what we do here in the news. 
we hear that we have a president whose popularity is high with some and low with others. You notice we hear about the threat of North Korea whose leadership is believed to be somewhat unpredictable. You never know what the next day is going to bring. We hear about the celebration of tax reform by some and mourning of disappointment by others. We have the announcement and the conversation about the royal engagement of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and some of that conversation is around her biracial composition of having a white father and a black mother and how the prince has broken away from tradition. And yet there are deaths that takes place all around us in reference to prominent people and some who are considered insignificant. And there are babies that are born who are considered yet prominent depending on who they're born to and insignificant to others and yet significant to the immediate family. And in the midst of such chaotic atmosphere, God yearly interrupts and gives us an intermission from the madness and the contest of living to celebrate the Roman identified moment as Christmas and yet we still overlook the person who gave the holiday meaning. What's amazing about this moment in history is that of all of the advertisement you will experience via internet newspaper, billboard, newscast, news feed, this baby is still going to be overlooked. We'll discuss the latest technology as to what gift we're going to give another. We'll wrestle with what to give and when to give it, but no announcement will be made regarding the birth of this child in Bethlehem. The season remains with bright lights, pretty trees, big malls, gift giving, and we will not take the time to see what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ incarnated. However, one person was conscious enough about this birth, one person who was a Roman governmental official named Herod, king of Judea. In fact, nothing bothered Herod more than that one word when he heard the Magi's pose the question, where is he born king of the Jews? See, that word born troubled Herod because as I said earlier, he knew that he was an appointed king and not a born king. And to make matters worse, as far as the Jews was concerned, they had no respect nor consideration of Herod as king at all. In fact, that created more uneasiness and more tension and paranoia in the life of Herod. If those visitors who had come were nothing more than poor beggars and poor shepherds and even poor merchants, Herod would not have paid much attention to the question that they had posed. But Herod listened knowing that those magis who came were significant kingly persons from the east. And they were being led by a star. Now mind you, Herod would have known very well the prophecy of Jesus because his connection 
to the priest and the high priest and the chief priest and the scribes would have informed him that there is to come a king born to the Jews in the city of Bethlehem. And when these magi showed up with this question, raising unto the people, where is he born king of the Jews? The puppet king of Judea got concerned that his reign is going to come to an end real soon. In fact, when I read this text, it dawned on me that folk all around us become afraid of you, the enemy becomes afraid of you, that what you have in you might be born from you. It was no threat when Jesus was just a prophecy. When he was just prophesied by others, he posed no threat at all. In fact, it was no threat when Jesus was just spoken of for those 400 years of silency when the Old Testament canon comes to the conclusion with Malachi and peaks its beginning in Matthew. Jesus was no threat, just a seed that's being pronounced. But when it was pronounced that he was going to be born, that changed the whole of dynamics for Herod. And notice what the text said not just Herod, but for everybody in Jerusalem as well. They all became concerned that this born king of the Jews is going to create a problem in the city. Herod, of great agony and disturbed by the announcement of the Magi's, feeling that and his economical standing was in great danger because this born king was going to dethrone him, he calls together all of his political and all of his religious connections, everybody who is somebody, and he calls in favors using every resource available to discover and to eliminate the threat that might remove him from his comfortable standing as king of the Jews. Look what it says in verse 4 and verse 5 particularly verse 4, he gathered together his chief priests and his scribes of the people and began to inquire of them where the Christ is going to be born. Even he attempts to utilize by way of deception a spirit of accommodation by soliciting the magis and telling them when you find out where the king of the Jews is going to be born, come back and tell me, verse 7 and 8, that I might go and worship him too as well. Have you noticed that when you are pregnant with potential, when you are pregnant with vision and promotion, when you are pregnant with revolution for change and progress, the enemy and your enemies will do everything possible to make you abort your pregnancy. There's a long trail of evidence, a long establishment of data in this text to support my premise. Notice two things, and then I'm going to take my seat. One, that if you are pregnant, there are perils to be accompanied by being pregnant with hope. Watch this. Notice that the text says that you've got to really watch out for the plot of the adversary. So Herod becomes the adversary in a plot to find out 
knowing that Mary is pregnant with hope. That's who Jesus is, but he's got to find a way to shut that pregnancy down. Why? Because the enemy wanted to make sure that the born didn't make it through infancy. Watch this now. Sometimes you can even give birth. In fact, your enemy will help you give birth. They will serve as a midwife to help you birth whatever it is in you. But they want to make sure that whatever you give birth to don't make it past infancy. Because if it ever starts to grow, it will become what God intended for it become. How do I know that? Listen to history. Joseph was pregnant with vision and his brothers sought to destroy that vision. Genesis 37. Moses was pregnant with liberation and Pharaoh sought to destroy Israel's liberation by attempting to destroy the Hebrew boys through the edict to the midwives to destroy every male child born to the Hebrew women. Jesus now is pregnant by way of Mary with redemption and Herod sought to destroy him, look at verse 16, by destroying all male children in Bethlehem and in all of the surrounding communities. When you destroy the males, you destroy the potential seed for future rivalry. Have you noticed that the male king of the line pride will kill all cubs when he becomes the immediate new predecessor. He will not allow any cubs from the previous king to be a born, to be born, but when they are born, not to grow up past infancy because they will pose a threat to his throne. So what does he do? He don't eat them. He just kills them as a process of elimination. And don't you know Satan just wants to kill your seed, kill your potential, because you pose a threat to satanic kingdom. Whenever you're pregnant with potential in terms of hope, Jesus said later on that the thief is going to come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In other words, he will not show up for the mere fact of being in relationship with you or being in harmony with you or making you think that he really is in love with you, no, Satan's objective is to eventually destroy you. Even after you give birth, he gonna hang around long enough to destroy what you've given birth to because what you've given birth to may very well pose a threat to him being on the throne of your life. And what God is trying to say is I'm going to bring this baby to pass because if I bring him to pass you're going to finally realize the right person is not on your heart but you need to have Christ born king of kings and lord of lords to be over the heart as king of your throne but not only that watch this secondly be careful because even though Satan poses a threat to destroy you and to kill that which is to be born, notice that God provides protection when you are pregnant with hope. Watch this. God will preserve what God has assigned. Let's go back. God used traveling merchants to bring deliverance to Joseph 
and to protect the vision that he had given Joseph. God moved on the heart of Judah not to kill Joseph, but to sell him to traveling Ishmaelite merchants who were coming by. Why? Even if it was only for 20 pieces of silver, God knew that he had placed in Joseph's life a vision of hope for all of Israel and he knew that there would be those who would try to cause him to abort what he had but when they thought about killing them God intervened and provided the protection needed to preserve Joseph and as a result Joseph rather than being killed is elevated to prime minister in Egypt why because the same God who puts the vision in you is the same God who responsible to make sure that the vision comes about why it's living on the inside of you. Second case in point, God used the Hebrew midwives who ignored the edict of Pharaoh because they said, says the text, we fear God more than you and we will not follow what you have told us to do in assisting killing those who are male born to Hebrew women. In fact, Exodus 1 verses 15 to 21 says that they helped bring birth to those newborn boys. Why? Because there's one boy they were trying to get to. Not the Pharaoh, but Satan through the Pharaoh was trying to get to that one little boy who would be in that small little bush rush, push down the Nile, but didn't he know that God protects what God imparts? And as a result, he thought that since he couldn't kill him in childbirth, he'd kill him in the Nile River. But didn't he know that God even used the enemy, Pharaoh's daughter, standing by the riverside, who noticed this baby coming down the Nile and watched God. And you think that's something. God using Pharaoh's daughter messed around and brought her right back to Jacob bag, his own mama who ended up caring for him in the first place. I'm just trying to tell you, when you're pregnant with God's hope, God will make sure he protects and preserves you in the process. And here it is, here it is in the text. God, in using Herod, who thought that because he makes an edict that all newborn boys or all boys from the ages of two and below is to be slaughtered in Bethlehem trying to get to this one boy in a manger did he not know that God was going to protect what God had given to humanity and what does God do when Herod called the Magi's together and told them when you find him Come back and let me know so I can go and worship them too. The Magi's were on their way, but look at God. He intervenes and tells the Magi's, Shh, come here, let me tell you a little something, something. Listen, don't go back and talk to Herod. Bro, man, lying, he's full of it. And you know what full of it means? You go in the opposite direction. And the Bible says that when Herod realized that he had been fooled and tricked, he got mad. Why? 
Because God knows how to preserve and keep you when your enemy is trying to destroy and eliminate you. He can take care of you. He can watch over you. He can provide for you. He won't let your enemy get the best of you. In fact, he will make your enemy your footstool. All you got to do is serve him. All you got to do is trust him. All you got to do is wait on him. All you got to do is believe him. And God will take care of you. Watch what the text says. The text says that Jesus was born, being born, was a clear depiction for us in terms of a threat to how we are not only born, watch this, but being born again. That second birth that God gives us into the family of God. That's why we should keep at the forefront of the Christmas season the birth of Christ and being born because that signals unto us that God gives us the new birth of love and the new birth of life and the new birth of lifting up. Had it not been for God causing us to be born again, we would all be on our way to an eternal separation from God, but because the king of the Jews was born, despite Herod's efforts, despite Herod's conniving, despite Herod's evilness, you can't stop God when God is in the process of blessing. Herod knew that if the king of the Jews is born, he would do what Herod could never do. He knew that if the king of the Jews was born, that he would lift people up. He would lift them out of their poverty and he would lift him out of the miry clay and that he would lift him out of the clutches of death and that's why this morning we should shout not because there's something under the tree for us that somebody gonna give us but we should shout because the child that was born in that stable in Bethlehem lifted us out of poverty and lifted us out of the miry clay and lifted us from the clutches of death and lifted us from the sorrows of life and lifted us from a confused mind and lifted us from a joyless day and lifted us from a powerless moment we should rejoice because he lifted us up turned us around and planted our feet on solid ground he lifted me when nothing else would help his joy lifted me. His peace lifted me. His comfort lifted me. His power lifted me. His everlasting joy lifted me. We ought to give God some praise because he lifted us. Hey! Yeah. Yeah, he lifted us. Yeah. But watch this. Herod was also afraid because he knew if this 
king of the Jews was born, he would not only lift us up, but he would stand people up. He, he would stand them on their feet of stability. And he would stand them on a foundation of hope. There it is right there in the record. Right there in the record. Jesus met a woman who, who, who had a bad situation where she had been married five times and divorced five times. And Jesus even told her, even the man that you're with, he ain't yours, that's somebody else's man. And yet, what did he do? He did not condemn her, but he managed to convert her and conform her and then empowered her and then standing her up on a more solid foundation. He changed her entire life. But she ain't the only one. There's some folk in this house this morning that if the truth were known, it was God who stood you up. When there were Herods all around you who tried to keep you down. And Herod knew that if he is born that means that the people will be born again and they will learn how to stand on their own two feet. They would not only be standing on the feet of stability, but they would finally stand on a foundation of hope. And one reason why I'm so glad that Jesus was born, he could handle folk like Peter, who, who was such an interesting, diverse, and even somewhat of a schizophrenic personality, and yet Jesus loved him anyhow. In the moment to which it was most critical that he would stand by his Savior, he denied his Savior. And yet, what did Jesus do? On the day of Pentecost, when the church was to experience its most prominent feeling of God's power, he uses the very one who denied him to stand up before the crowd and to tell the story about his goodness. All because he had given Peter a foundation of hope. When Peter was out fishing and could not catch any fish and when he came back to shore Jesus told him to go back out there and cast your nets on the opposite side and Peter said Lord we have been fishing all night long nevertheless at your word we shall do it and he goes out and does exactly as Jesus says and when he comes back he can't bring all the, the fish back to shore so he calls other folk with their boats to come help him and he gets back to shore he looks at Jesus and says I am not worthy to stand before you and Jesus says unto him, don't worry about that. I already knew that you were going to mess up in the first place. When I get finished with you, you are not only going to collect fish, but you are going to be fishers of men. Because he now stood Peter up on a solid foundation of hope. All because he was born. And you and I got a chance to be born again. But Herod knew that if he was born, he would not only lift people up. He knew that if he would be born, he'd not only stand people up. But Herod knew also that he would do something that he never could do. He would build people up. He would give them encouragement. He would give them peace. He would give them some love and give them some power. He'd give them joy. He'd give them evidence that they have been born for victory and born for praise. That's why we should celebrate that he was born 
so that not only that I could be born again, but I can be built up with encouragement and built up with the peace of God and built up by the love of God and built up by the power of God and built up by the joy of God and built up with evidence to let me know that I have been born again. And I'm glad. I'm glad I'm born again. I'm glad I have the gift of life. I'm glad I know who he is. I'm glad that I know he will make a way out of no way. I'm glad I know that he is a bridge builder, a burden bearer, a load carrier. He's the Prince of Peace, the everlasting God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Because he's born. Grandmama say he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me that I am his own. He guides my feet. He holds my hand. And whenever the storm arises, he stands up to calm the raging sea. I'm talking about him who was born. And that's what Herod's problem was. Herod was afraid that if he be born, I would lose my throne. I just need to tell Herod, you didn't have no throne in the first place. You, you didn't have no throne. What you have was only temporarily, because if you keep on reading the text, it says later that God told Mary and Joseph, go to Egypt and hang out there until I deal with Herod. And when he deals with Herod, read the text, it says, and Herod died. That's what I like about my enemies. Mess with me if you want to. Keep on messing with me if you want to. But one day, I'm going to be the one who read, and you died. Because that's what God does. He takes care of those who trust him and those who lean on him and those who believe him and those who care for God will handle all the Herods in your life because whatever he has made you pregnant with he's going to help you bring it to birth and he's going to get it past infancy as long as you do as Mary and Joseph did when Jesus was born the first thing they did was take him to the temple translation take him to church pastor pray over my baby boy that God would put his hand on his life and lead him and it doesn't matter what it is whatever you give birth to you better bring it right on here to this altar and say Lord you gave it to me place your anointing fresh upon it that it might lead me and take me to the victory you've assigned for it to be that's all I came to tell you. That's all I came to tell you. You might get a lot of stuff under the tree in the morning, but that's just temporary stuff. It's going to die out, fade away, rust out, wear out the whole nine yards. But I know one gift. I know one gift you're going to get. I know one gift I hope you got. It doesn't fade out. It doesn't rust out. He won't die out. You can't tell him out. You can't make him disappear. But he will always, that's why he's called Emmanuel. God with us. He'll be with you. He'll be with you every single day. And when you realize how valuable your life is, wrapped in the person of Jesus Christ, 
Man, when you get up tomorrow morning, you just going to be, Lord, this is the day that you have made. I am rejoicing and glad within it. And I'm going to bless your name at all times because you're worthy of such praise. But just because it's December 25th, that ain't a reason for me just to thank you. I thank you for every single day that you give me and every moment that you give me to praise your name. I just honor you for who you are. If it had not been for the Lord on my side, where would I be? He kept all my enemies and he let the sun shine through a cloudy day. Shoot, that's enough. Then he messed around and rocks me in the cradle of his arms. That's why we ought to be shouting to great joy. Because the God that we serve was born. And because he was born in human flesh. He knows everything about me and can experience all of my issues and challenges. And that's why he's worthy to be the Lord of my life. Because he knows all about me. So Merry Christmas to every one of you. In the words of Chuck Brown, Merry Christmas, baby. Show been good to me. In fact, if we weren't so holy, I, I, yeah, I, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. We got, we got sanctified people here. We got sanctified folk. But all of the folk who are being sanctified and all the folk who are celebrating the goodness of God. Listen, we ain't at December 31st yet, but when I think about how good he's been to me across the course of this year alone, I, I, got, to, I got to stand and celebrate it. Hit it for me one time, hit it for me. I, I got to give God some glory and just thank him for being so good to me. Give me a little Chuck Brown, ain't nothing wrong with it. For all of us sinners, Don't be scared. Put it out there. There you go. Because he's been that good to me where I just want to celebrate him. Now, those of you who don't enjoy celebration, you sit right there. We'll just take this moment to celebrate how good he's been and how magnificent the King of Kings is and the Lord of Lords. Merry Christmas, baby. Hallelujah. Come on, let's stand to our feet. Hallelujah.
as my Christmas gift to the musicians so they can jam a little bit for Christmas gift. Amen. Those are the church are open. Anybody might be.